Ephesians chapter two. Uh, we are um, we're we're finishing this morning uh, this little three week hiatus from the book of John uh, to uh, address, if you will, the first three membership vows for joining not just Grace Covenant but any PCA church, any PCA church in the world that you want to join. You would answer, ask, you would be asked, and you would have to answer the exact same questions uh, everywhere. Uh, and uh, this morning's question, the third question, um, I've got it printed for you there under that preaching of the word. Do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? What a fun phraseology that is. Um, We've been using uh, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 uh, as our text for each of the first three questions, uh, and this morning is no different. Let me pray uh, as we come to God's Word together, and then I'll ask that you, if you're able, uh, to stand as we read uh, His Word. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, You inspired these words. You've preserved these words, and now you are to be at work by them. Uh, use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Uh, use them to root out sin in our lives and stir us up to love and good works. Uh, we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior and for His sake. Amen. Uh, if you would, would you please stand as we read verses 1 through 10 of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Would you give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers the flowers, ah, sorry, I forgot. Our response to his word printed in the bulletin. Uh, old habits die hard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, if you go to a bookstore, uh, bookstores have self-help sections. They have sections you go in, you can find, you know, all this cool stuff. And then they have whole sections on self-help, like Rose. It's um, a, has been a rather growing industry in the last several decades. 
and I guess I get it. I guess the idea is that, um, you know, that these books are designed to help you get better in some way or another. I've got this weird thinking pattern. I need to fix that. I've got this weird habit. I need to fix that. Or I don't know how to get healthier. I don't know how to get this or that. And, and okay, I, I guess those things make sense. But is that really what we want from a bookstore? Is that really what we want from is a, a self-help section, a section that, that tells you, well, really, your biggest problem is you just got to fix this or that or maybe these things about you. And it, once you do, once you help yourself, then you'll be a lot better. But is that what the Bible teaches us? I mean, does the Bible say that the self-help section is exactly what you need? The Bible actually tells us you you can't fix yourself. Like, like, you're the problem. So you can't fix the problem. You're dependent on Jesus to fix the problem for you. No self-help book out there can solve your greatest need. Your greatest need is not just to fix this thought or this uh, attitude or this whatever. Um, but your greatest need can only be solved by Jesus himself. But interestingly enough, the Bible does expect us to change. It does expect that we will be different. It does expect that we will somehow change. And we've seen it just in our passage this morning, which we're primarily going to focus on verse 10. And it's really the essence of that third membership vow. There's this question. Do you resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace that you'll live a different kind of life than you've been living? And so first, I want us to see the gospel produces change. It's important that we that we pay attention uh, this will matter, by the way. This will be a big deal, ladies, in coming weeks. Uh, I'm sure. I assume. Okay. It will be. I know who's teaching most of the lessons. But you're going to notice a pattern in Paul's letters. Paul's letters all follow, in essence, the same sort of pattern. There's, there's uh, English grammar class on a Sunday. There's an indicative section and an imperative section. And usually you'll find a therefore and you're thinking, huh, there's the transition. I know where I am now. I just left the indicatives, just launched into the imperatives. Indicatives describe what are, what is. Imperatives tell you what to do. They're commands. And the order matters. And what's interesting is the order is actually here in these, these first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Did you notice how verse 10 begins? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And, and he's been talking and he's been talking for a, more than a chapter now. But for our purposes, for our focus, the first nine verses, Paul's been talking about the fact that our salvation is a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not 
in the things that we do. It's not in our obedience. It's not in our works. Our comfort, our hope, our standing before God isn't, well, I do this or I've done that. Our standing before God is Christ and Him alone. And this Paul's gone painstaking, painstaking lengths to communicate that just in these first nine verses. In fact, he says, even at the beginning of verse 10, we are His workmanship. What we are now is a product, not of the self-help section, but of the God-help section, Right? It's not the, I've helped myself and now I'm better. I'm not my own workmanship. No, we are His workmanship. And the reality is that our our justification, our being declared right, righteous in His sight, our being declared not guilty in the sight of God is a work of God's grace. It's also true that Our sanctification, our growth in grace is a work of God's grace. You ever think to yourself, you ever think about um, God as sort of sitting there waiting for you? Right? I mean, God's sitting there and all he's doing is just waiting for you to make that right decision. He's waiting for you to pray that prayer. He's waiting for you to raise your hand. He's waiting on you to sort of make the first step. He's waiting on you to come to Him. And when you do, and He's kind of wringing His hands. He's kind of wishing you would, but really doesn't do much more than that. God sort of sits idly by and maybe even a little helpless while you decide whether or not you're going to come to Him, whether or not you need Him. But this verse begins with the assumption that he's already worked. That he's already done something. That he actually came to you first. You're not your workmanship. You're his workmanship. In fact, he then goes on to use this word created. And and immediately you, you understand what creation is. You understand how Genesis 1 and 2 work. You understand that God brought into existence whatever is and and he did so out of nothing simply by the word of his power simply spoke let there be and there was creation didn't go to god and say hey we we want to exist hey hey i want i want to be i'm a leopard and i want to be a leopard so could you make me a leopard Creation didn't say, hey, I've got this great idea, God. You should make me. Right? That's the same sort of concept here. That we are made new. We are a creation. A new creation in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul writes exactly that in 2 Corinthians 5. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Again, the creation is passive. The creator is. Does the work. And so there's this connection then that that our new standing, our new life, our being his workmanship and our new creation is rooted in the fact that Christ has done something for us. Christ has accomplished our salvation. In fact, you, you can go back 
You want a Sunday afternoon assignment? Sometimes I give Sunday afternoon homework assignments. I actually kind of like Sunday afternoon homework assignments. But if you want an assignment, just go back this afternoon. Don't do it now because then you'll tune me out. It'll only take you five minutes anyway. And count from Ephesians 1.1 to Ephesians 2.10. Count how many times you see the phrase in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus. It's our being who we are is rooted in him. It's, it's in and because of and, and united to Christ that we are a new creation. There's this picture then that we were, we were dead. That was verse 1. And now we're alive. And just as the leper didn't go to God and say, make me, dead people don't make themselves alive we were dead in our trespasses and sins now we're alive in christ why because we're god's workmanship you 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 hear the theme you hear the pattern right the gospel produces change in us and that that word order matters in fact I'll tell you now the second point of this. And there's only two. The second point is actually the same phrase. What matters is which syllable gets the emphasis. What matters is which word is the bold. And order matters. The order is vitally important. It's, it's vital. You can't get them mixed up. And Scripture from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation tells us over and over again that we're not saved by our works, that we're not saved by our goodness. We're not saved by our obedience. We're not saved because we're just that good looking. We're just that smart. We're just that special. We're just that gifted. We're saved in Christ. And so Paul portrays that for us in his letter pattern, indicative, imperative. But he also portrays it just in this, sort of on the micro, in these 10 verses. Verses 1 through 9, indicative. Verse 10 is the imperative. And so Paul, having dealt sufficiently with our salvation in Christ and Him alone only then gives us the therefore, only then tells us the result, the product, the effect of that indicative in and on our lives. Only then will He tell us what this new creation should look like. The gospel produces change. No self-help book can solve our greatest need. And so the, the, the Bible's clear that uh, apart from Christ, we can live, uh, we can't live a life pleasing to God. And that's really the essence of the, 
the part of the membership vow that's actually sort of easy enough to understand. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit? See, that's, that far makes sense even to children. If you know what resolve means, if you know what promise, promise you get. And so the, the membership vow even sort of captures the indicative and imperative in itself. That any endeavoring on our part, any effort given to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God is rooted in the grace of the Holy Spirit. The gospel produces change. But second, the gospel produces change. See, that's, that's where the emphasis goes on the last word instead of the second word. I find it fascinating that Paul goes to great lengths to tell us your good works are nothing. Your good works cannot and, and will not save you because truth is you, you don't have them. They're not there. Your good works are not going to save you. Your good works are worthless when it comes to your standing before God. And then he says, now, go do good works. Does, does, does not, do you not get to verse 10 and kind of go, well, hold on a second, time out. You literally just told me. Like you beat me over the head with. Your good works aren't going to do you any good. And so therefore... Go do good works. Verse 10. It seems odd coming on the heels of everything he said for the last nine verses and really chapter one as well. What does it mean then that we've been prepared for good works in Christ Jesus, what are these good works? And you start going, hey, wait, I was a Boy Scout, right? Was it cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean and reverent? Is that the part I remember? I can't remember any more than that. I was a Boy Scout for about that long. Long enough to remember cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean and reverent. And I maybe just made up words completely. That I may be completely way off. And we're thinking, okay, well, good works. Okay, that means... When, when we leave, I'm going to go help the old lady across the street. The proverbial old lady, old lady that always needs to get across the street. I don't, I don't, not really sure why there's always an old lady crossing the street, but apparently we're supposed to go help her. There's this, this notion that we start coming up with, well, what are these good works that I can do Finally. Something that will get God's attention. I get to go do some stuff so that I can pat myself on the back and say, look how great I am because I'm doing all these things. And so what am I going to I'm going to sit in my room and come up with ideas. Sounds like a great sort of idea. That's a good work. I'll go do that. But we, this is why, by the way, we use as our affirmation of faith those two paragraphs on good works from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Like, good works come to us from Scripture. They come to us from God's Word. They're things that He has told us to do, things He's commanded us to do. And the reality is there's no command to help old ladies across the street. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to. 
It's loving to them to care for them that way. Don't, don't run the wrong direction. The reality is if you follow Paul's letter, as we've mentioned, the indicatives describe what is. This tells you what you are. And then the second half of most of his letters is imperative. Therefore, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Therefore, wives submit to your husbands. Therefore, children obey your parents. Therefore, parents, don't be a knucklehead to your kids. Okay, that's a paraphrase. It's the, the new life, what the new life looks like comes after this passage. And in fact, you can sort of watch it unfold even beginning in verse 11. We didn't read verses 11 to 18, but there's a, the beginning of a picture in those verses that there's now a, a oneness, a unity within the body of Christ that on account of Christ, that that despite your background, despite your ancestry, despite your heritage, despite your people, your mama and them, in Christ, you have a new family. You have new brothers and sisters. You have new siblings. And it unfolds in this Jewish-Gentile relationship. And you realize that Jews called Gentiles dogs. That's going to be fun in Galatians. I'll save it for you. That's, that was the view that the Jews had of Gentiles. Well, they're dogs. And then suddenly, because of conversion, because both are in Christ, now they are one together. There's a, a picture then as you kind of unfold Ephesians of this relational unity of the change, the relational change that comes in the life of believers. Before the, before the time of Christ, if you read the Old Testament, there are two kinds of people. There's Jews and Gentiles. There's Jews and non-Jews. There's still two kinds of people. God's people and not God's people. It's actually the same two groups of people. We just happen to use the word Christian, non-Christian, or church, not church. It's the same group of people come for the covenant class that starts in March to hear that un unfolded. The reality is that anyone in Christ, now being a new creation, whatever your horrid background might look like, whatever things that you're kind of embarrassed of and kind of ashamed, and you really are thankful that you grew up in a time when there wasn't social media and you, weren't dumb, you were not dumb enough to publicize it, but you couldn't because it didn't exist. And you're grateful for that. Well, at least, at least some of my stupid stuff's forgotten because I didn't have the opportunity to be dumb enough to share it on Facebook and Instagram and video it for everybody to see. Whatever your background, whatever, however disdainful you were, no matter who you were, all Christians have the same status before God. United to Christ, saved by grace, adopted as his child. And so the rest of Ephesians 2 gives us that picture of the relational change that comes on account of the gospel. 
Jews and Gentiles couldn't eat at the same table. And now they're invited to the Lord's table together. Where they can feast on Christ together. The gospel produces change. And one of those kinds of changes is relational change. But then there's another example of the change that the gospel produces. Turn to Acts chapter 19. And let me just give you a glimpse of the impact of the gospel on an entire city. In Acts 19, uh, the gospel's at work in the city of Ephesus, verse 23. And again, remember, these are the people receiving the letter that we're reading now, right? So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 was written to these people. About that time, verse 23, Acts 19, 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is... Christians for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, Diana, uh, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, excuse me. But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the great temple of the, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. There's a financial change. There's a, it started costing the idol makers, I-D-O-L, money. Their income was in danger. Why? Because people were being converted and they stopped spending their money on little silver Artemis dolls. They stopped buying Art- There was not the, the need, the demand for little... Diana Artemis dolls so decreased that the silversmiths were afraid for the food on their table. Now, silversmith, find other ways to other things to make that other people will need. That's fine. But you see the impact of the gospel. They changed the way they spent their money. They changed the things they bought. They changed the way they used the things that God had given them. And Demetrius is scared because his wallet is going to shrink. That's what revival would look like. A revival in the land would look like the porn industry worried because they can't make money. The abortion industry worried because they can't make money. That's what revival would do for us. That's what revival would do in this land. The effect of the gospel is that we 
become different. The gospel produces both relational and economic change and others as well. I just chose two to give you two examples because they're right here connected to the very recipients of this letter. The question is, do you see that in your own life? Are you sort of watching that in yourself? Do you look at the way you spend your time and spend your money? Do you examine your bank account? Do you watch the checks you write? Do you watch the things on auto pay? Are you paying attention to um, the people you spend time with and the way you have relationships with people? Are there, are there brothers and sisters in Christ that you say, I could never possibly ever be with that person? The gospel is supposed to break down that wall. Is the Spirit at work in us so that we might do these good works to honor and glorify Christ, these works that we are created for and which have been prepared for us to walk in? Do you see evidence that you truly are a new creation in these various areas of your life? I'll close with a story. Of the Welsh Revival of 1904. Um, Early 20th century. The word goes forth. Gospels preached. People are converted. The spirits at work. People change. And suddenly. the, The pit ponies. The ponies that worked for the miners. Quit working. You think well exactly the gospel do to the ponies like were the ponies converted and they decided mining wasn't for them like that's a godless business i'm not doing that anymore now see the problem was they didn't know how to respond to a calmly clearly given command they only understood yelling and cussing And when the miners' lives were changed by the gospel, their ponies didn't know what to do. Evidence of the gospel was those ponies basically had to become pets and they had to get new ones and retrain them using just, you know, sit, stay, come, instead of asterisk, at symbol, dollar sign, whatever those symbols are you see in the cartoons. The miners were so drastically changed by the gospel that they had trouble with the pit ponies. That's what we want for us. That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want for for each of us individually. It's what we want for our community. It's what we want for our nation. Such that the, the gospel so goes forward. The spirit so works in and through us. That we have to get new pets. That people have to get new jobs. That entire industries collapse. Because God's people want to honor and glorify Christ in our good works. Has the gospel changed you? Is the spirit at work in you? Are you being conformed more and more into the image of Christ? Is the image of Christ being formed more and more in you? That's what we're asking in the third 
membership vow? Is the gospel changing you? Is the gospel making you think and act and interact and spend money and spend your time differently? Do you have different priorities? Are things changing in your life? Are you watching evidence of the gospel? Because that's what those good works are. They're evidence of the gospel. They aren't the gospel. They aren't the means of God's favor. They're the product of it. May it be that the Spirit would be at work in His people and that our lives will more and more reflect that which becomes the followers of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have granted us the gospel. You have granted us salvation in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, not by our works. We cannot boast. We have not done anything to merit our salvation. However, that gospel does change us. Would you, O Holy Spirit, be so at work in us and through us that our lives, our, our attitudes, our, our lives and our loves reflect more and more the impact of love for Jesus and the love of Jesus for us and the things that we do and the way we spend our time and money and energy. We pray that you would use this, your word. We pray for women's Bible study that, that as your word goes forth, that it would be clear and powerful and held in the hands of the spirit that this community would be different. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. And for his honor and glory, not for our own. Amen.